Welcome to Junk Filter, Episode 2. My name is Jesse Hawken, and this is a podcast about film, music, politics, and jokes. Today's topic is the immortal and notorious pornographer Al Goldstein. And my guest for today is Toronto author and podcaster king Will Sloan. Happy to be here. Welcome to the program. You know, of all the podcast invites I've had over the years, uh, I've had some enticing ones, but the offer to talk about Al Goldstein on a podcast is one that I never I never dreamed of, and it, it must rank at the top of the list. There has never been an invite more more tailored to me than this. Well, I'll take that compliment. One thing that maybe you know about Will Sloan and maybe you don't is that this gentleman was one of the last people to see Al Goldstein alive. And we'll get into that. They call it the Will Sloan curse, folks. Keep me away from your grandparents. Jesse, it's uh, it's good to see you. Uh, you you were mentioning uh, before we started recording that my housewarming party was the last thing you did before lockdown. And in fact, it was also, I think, the last thing that I did before lockdown, too. Um, so I haven't seen you since then. I haven't seen anybody since then. Uh, I've, I've really been going crazy. Podcasts like this um, are, are therapeutic for me at this point. Well, and that's exactly one of the reasons why I started the show. It was kind of like I wanted to engineer a way to see my friends again. Have you noticed that you've lost touch with all your casual acquaintances uh, in this? Like you don't run into anyone anymore? I have. I also, it's also strange to run into people socially or out on the street that you haven't seen in a long time because it's like seeing a ghost sometimes. Yeah, yeah. You kind of like forget what your rhythm is with some of these people. Uh, there are many, there are many friendships or acquaintanceships that are very context based. I also worry sometimes that there'll be somebody that I haven't seen in a long time. And, they, and in the meantime, in all this pandemic, they've actually gone crazy. And I'm going to be confronted with how crazy they are. Wow. That hasn't happened. I think we've all gone a little crazy in this pandemic. Let us move on to our topic. Can you briefly summarize who Al Goldstein is for the four or five people listening to this show who don't already know? Al Goldstein was the publisher of Screw Magazine, which was a New York-based alt-weekly, ran from 1969 to 2003, and it was a sort of consumer reports for sex. It would chronicle all the goings-on, all the happenings of the porn and sex industry in New York. It would review massage parlors, burlesque houses, strip clubs. When softcore and then later hardcore pornographic movies started coming out, it would review all of those. It was the only publication at the start that would review some of these movies. It also, in the late 60s, early 70s, had a little element of counterculture chic to it because of this. So, like, uh, because it had this reputation as being very much against censorship, and Goldstein and his co-founder, Jim Buckley, were always out fighting anti-censorship court cases. They would get interviews with people like Salvador Dali, Gore Vidal, John Lennon and Yoko Ono during their Montreal bed-in did an interview with Screw. Uh, Goldstein... A rather colorful figure. He was the Hugh Hefner of the magazine, I guess you could say, although he was very much the anti-Hugh Hefner. He was a self-proclaimed fat Jewish pornographer 
and he was the the embodiment of the audience that screw magazine was targeting you know um unattractive lonely man who could only get sex if they paid for it he lived the lifestyle uh and and you know like like the founder of hair club for men he was also a member uh the magazine's period of counterculture chic didn't last all that long although the magazine did it lasted as i said until 2003 by which time goldstein's many divorces and his um uh, you know increasingly uh less than honorable criminal trials had had chewed away at his vast fortune and he ended up being homeless on the street i think that's a bit of a precy of of al goldstein the way that I always looked at Goldstein was that, like, Hugh Hefner created the template for published pornography. But Goldstein was actually the first major envelope pusher in terms of a more explicit uh, output. And then also, and most importantly, how he financed the magazine, which was through uh, advertising for the services of massage parlors and prostitution. By the time the magazine closed, by the way, all of that advertising had migrated to the internet. And also, before that, the Village Voice had kind of taken a lot of it, too. Uh, But yeah, there was that. And it was also made possible, frankly, by the mafia, because the only people who would distribute it to newsstands, he couldn't he couldn't get like a mainstream distributor to do it. So it would be mafia distributors. So yeah, it was a mix of um, uh, mob money and sex industry money that, you know, uh, Goldstein was able to, for a brief period, live in an Upper East Side townhouse on. But I think the comparison to Hugh Hefner is very important. Uh, I've always like, I've always weirdly kind of hated Hugh Hefner. Um, I, I, I've always hated the kind of Playboy brand and the Playboy lifestyle that, you know, debonair, um, pseudo James Bondian aesthetic it was pushing of like ah oh, yes you know we are uh, we, we are serious intellectuals who like to read Norman Mailer in between uh, uh, heavily airbrushed photos of naked women you know there was always something kind of I, I mean all of these magazines are hideously sexist right um, mm-hmm. and, and so like there's no defending uh, Al Goldstein's magazine which is you know in its own way, every bit as sexist as Playboy is. Um, but but the only difference, and you know, I think um, David Foster Wallace kind of hit on this when he wrote his essay "Big Red Sun." David Foster Wallace went to the Adult Film Awards, and it was 1998 or so, and Goldstein was getting a Lifetime Achievement Award, and Wallace wrote. He's been a First Amendment ninja. He drinks in the applause and loves it, and it's hard not to almost sort of actually like him. He's clearly an avatar of contemporary porn's unabashedness. It's modern. Yeah, okay, I'm scum, but underneath all your hypocrisy, so are you, and at least I have the guts to admit it and have a good time persona. And I think that's the appeal of Al Goldstein and why I find him um, why I find him so much more delightful to think about than Hugh Hefner. Hefner, and to a lesser extent, Guccione, pushed a more aspirational idea of sort of the lifestyle that can come with the consumption of pornography. Whereas Goldstein just cut the middleman out, cut the the idea of the aspirational aspect of it out. Goldstein cut to the chase. I think that's very important. I don't think the Playboy lifestyle is something to aspire to, you know? 
I think it's like toxic and bad. And I think, you know, all you have to do is look at Hugh Hefner's pathetic late career where he was this, you know, elderly, elderly man who would force his 10 girlfriends to take part in orgy night. And, you know, they would like ply him with Viagra and each girl would like take turns riding his zombified dick for a few minutes. I mean, that's that's so ugly. Um, and it, it's not aspirational at all. Whereas there's something about Goldstein that's like, look, I'm in the muck with you. You know, we all share these indecent desires. Um, it's not, I mean, that's not admirable either, but at least it's real. <laughs> I want to circle back a little bit to the idea of consumerism as a way to try and understand Goldstein. Because one, Goldstein's main contribution to the sort of normalization of porn in the culture was exactly to create this sort of consumer reports mentality towards the sex trade. It's notable as well that Goldstein was actually one of the first film critics of pornography. Yeah, in fact, his review of Deep Throat in 1972 is, or has been credited with turning that movie into a hit because, uh, well, I mean, Deep Throat was probably about as good a, a pornographic film as had ever been released at that time, which means that it had a story and, you know, it had a sense of humor and um, actions had some sense of consequence in it. You know, it wasn't just a stag reel uh, and it was also very explicit. So it wasn't a softcore film. So it probably would have been like a minor hit anyway, but like Goldstein turned it into sort of a counterculture thing because he gave it a very rave review. He gave it 100% on the Peter meter which was his patented grading system. Uh, if it was 100% on the Peter meter, that means it gave him a full erection. He said of the movie, I was never so moved by any theatrical performance since stuttering through my own bar mitzvah. Um, <laughs> and so that review made it uh, a hit at the world cinema where it premiered. And because so much traction got to the world cinema, then the vice squad clamped down on it and the combined forces of the vice squad uh, censoring the film and Goldstein's rave review that led to, you know, Truman Capote and Andy Warhol and Johnny Carson and all these mainstream figures uh, checking out the movie, you know, gleefully slumming. And that led to this period of porno chic in the 70s, where there was this thought that maybe there, maybe there would be a way to integrate pornography uh, into the mainstream. I actually kind of like some of the reviews that Goldstein was writing before Deep Throat came out, because after Deep Throat, basically every review in Screw Magazine would be whatever the big porn release that week was. But before that, he would review stuff like uh, El Topo, uh, I've got a review th that he wrote somewhere of Fellini Satyricon, you know, just vaguely sex themed movies that would come out. I, I, I'm sad that he didn't continue doing that. Goldstein thought of himself also as an intellectual. <laughs> Although, as we're going to get into this when we talk about the two documentaries that um, sort of capture Goldstein at sort of both ends of his long decline. You notice when Goldstein tries to talk smart and to sound smart to impress women or to intimidate women that he uses the same uh, language all the time. He'll mention Descartes, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, has he actually read a lot of Descartes and is familiar? He seems to be name dropping uh, big names that uh, Spinoza and Descartes that an intellectual would say, but doesn't say anything else. 
Yeah, his intellectual touchstones truly seem to be um, people that he projected himself onto. He would talk a lot about Lenny Bruce, for instance, and he had Lenny Bruce's mother, Sally Marr, on his public access show, Midnight Blue. Um, You know, he would talk about Allen Ginsberg. You know, he was like a classic narcissist. So the people that he, uh, any intellectual touchstones he actually had were ones who also had a kind of like martyr element to them. Screw Magazine is uh, Goldstein's main publishing legacy, but I really want to single out what I think was his most significant cultural history contribution, and that is the program that he hosted on New York's public access television for about 25 years, perhaps even longer, called Midnight Blue. He started this with a lefty broadcaster and journalist named Alex Bennett, It was originally started under the name Screw Magazine of the Air, but they had to change the name because a public access show couldn't be affiliated with a commercial enterprise. But Midnight Blue, I mean, it is a very special thing. Free speech laws were such in New York at the time that there was unusual leniency for sex and nudity on public access television. So, of course, New York public access became instantly notorious as, you know, basically being like, softcore pornography, you know, one sex show after another. Midnight Blue was very much what Screw was for publishing, but on TV. It would document the goings-on of the sex industry in New York. Some of the memorable early episodes were like, uh, they did a report on a cat house for dogs, you know, a brothel for dogs that was operating in New York. Uh, You know, they were at Plato's retreat to document when this woman named Tara Alexander attempted the world's biggest gangbang. They would interview all the big porn stars of the day, you know, Marilyn Chambers, Jamie Gillis, uh, etc. They would be there on, on the ground for premieres of the big porn movies. So, you know, if deep inside Annie Sprinkle had a big red carpet premiere at the World Cinema, they'd be there with their with their roving reporters. But after Alex Bennett left, it basically became like Al Goldstein's Vanity Press. And he started this segment, which I think really is the lasting contribution of Midnight Blue, the Fuck You segment where it would just be like a couple minutes of him sitting on a chair, picking a target, Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes worthy, sometimes not worthy. You know, one week it might be Rudy Giuliani. Another week it might be Regis Philbin or Howard Stern. You know, there's, there's an amazing moment in the Screwed documentary, which we'll talk about in a minute, where he's like, it's a clip of him railing against Regis Philbin. You know, Regis, uh, you're no good. I, I bet your wife doesn't know what a real dick looks like. Uh, fuck you. And, you know, we give a middle finger to the camera. Yeah, he's just so angry at Regis Philbin, who, you know, I don't know how you can be that angry at Regis, but but he does somehow manage it. And, and, and back to the consumerism angle of Goldstein. What I found, especially as he started to lose his mind as, as the show kept going, was that he the big consumer reports writer would take a camera over to a place that had wronged him in terms of customer service and do like a three or four minute rant, uh, anything from a dry cleaner to a restaurant to a hotel. And I saw this incredible clip where he's ranting about the Hotel Carlisle, where he puts up the 
the manager of the hotel's <laughs> phone number <laughs> and encourages and encourages viewers to call him and scream at him for how badly he wronged Al. Yeah, and I mean this is this is really bad and there comes a point in any discussion about Al Goldstein where like you you start accumulating all of his offenses over the years and then inevitably someone will ask, "Okay, like why would you be interested in this person? This person sounds absolutely horrible." And yes, he is absolutely horrible. Um, and I don't have a good answer to that. But what I will say is those DVDs that Blue Underground put out in the 2000s, which uh, they're like seven or eight volumes of the best of Midnight Blue, uh, they are just an incredible like King Tut's tomb of an alternative history of American culture. Um, yes. You know, he was there with his cameras documenting all of this stuff as it happened. Uh, and, and thank God he was. By the way, if anybody connected to Blue Underground ever listens to this, uh, c- can you please just like give me access to the tapes? Um, I want I want to see the entire run of the show. Yes. What I find mesmerizing as well about Midnight Blue. I mean, I love the interviews and I love, you know, the, the spectacle of Goldstein having a meltdown. But there are also these incredible time capsule commercials for escort services and. Oh, yeah massage parlors that were made i suppose for the show because what other television show could possibly have these commercials on it oriental beach escorts is new york city's most exclusive oriental service call us now for the most pleasurable experience available anywhere 24 hours seven days they would also have commercials for places that would uh, Al Goldstein would give them airtime if he could eat there for free. So lots of commercials for pastrami restaurants. Al Lewis from the Monsters, you know, Grandpa Monster, he had a restaurant in New York, so he would have commercials on Midnight Blue. Oh, by the way, the interview with Al Lewis on Midnight Blue is one of the greatest interviews of all time. It, it's it's up there with Frost Nixon because halfway through. Goldstein goes off on this rant about celebrity culture and about the way that people idolize celebrities. And he starts being like, you people out there, you look at people like me and Al and we're on TV and you think we have perfect lives. But actually, we don't. You know, we have insecurities. We have we have problems just like anybody. Just because we're famous doesn't mean we've completely made it. And Al Lewis is sitting next to him just like nodding solemnly like yes yes this is absolutely correct (laughs) actually okay there are are just so many great uh uh al goldstein interviews on midnight blue because he would of course interview porn stars which which were fascinating because he was just a completely uninhibited uninhibited interviewer um but he would also interview just like random celebrities who i don't know how they got roped in but like debbie harry was interviewed and if you look up the debbie harry interview on youtube uh it's great because all of the youtube commenters have no idea who al goldstein is and they're like what is the deal with this interviewer he interviewed r crumb uh he interviewed tiny tim which is also an incredible interview because uh, Tiny Tim is such a sexually dysfunctional person, and he just very matter-of-factly lays out all of his neuroses on the air. Um, uh, you know, j- just the sheer unabashedness of this, combined with the fact that he is Tiny Tim, 
makes makes for very fruitful viewing. Yeah, yeah. There's this this very very strange um, dis a cognitive dissonance on the air. Like, why are these people mm-hmm. talking to Al Goldstein on his weird public access porn show? Which is, of course, going right up to the line. Like, what you're not supposed to do on TV. He's right on the line all the time. Mm-hmm. You described it very memorably in um, in your piece for Hazlitt about the the life of Al Goldstein, which I'll put a link to in the description, where you said that uh, public access television to be able to sort of democratize access in New York is this utopian vision. But at the same time, all utopias are threatened by people like Al Goldstein. They come in and they they just upend the good intentions. Yes, although I do say that with affection because I am I am glad that uh, Midnight Blue got to run for 25 years as opposed to, you know, some boring bullshit that's on any other public access station. Yeah, like why can't the why can't Midnight Blue be on TV for as long as The Simpsons has been on TV? Yes. I really hate television more and more. Television news, it is so pathetic. I don't frankly even believe that much in democracy. It doesn't work because there are idiots who are speaking who know less than I know. I want to listen to experts. I want to learn. I want to read from scholars. I want to learn from history. But the man in the street, asking him what he thinks about the event of the day, who cares? He can hardly talk. The man in the street interviews is just an excuse to kill time on television. It's sickening, and the people on television are even more sickening. Fuck you all. You know, I was aware of Al Goldstein when I was a teenager because he would occasionally pop up in documentaries. He was in the John Holmes documentary Wad, for instance, and I think he was in Inside Deep Throat, too, and a few others. And when I was a younger man, I remember finding him just to be an absolutely viscerally unpleasant screen presence. Uh, Didn't like him at all. I became more interested in him when I was living in New York and doing uh, a journalism degree, I was doing a master's project on the naked cowboy. So I was very fascinated in Times Square and reading a lot about Times Square history. And I'm not quite sure why, but I picked up a copy of his autobiography, which was mostly ghostwritten by Josh Allen Friedman. It's called I Goldstein. I, I believe you have a copy on your shelf too, right? In fact, you activated me into action because you bought it at this used bookstore called BMV in Toronto. But then you messaged me one day and said, there's another copy of it. So (laughs) I raced over to BMV and grabbed it. Well, I was very fascinated reading it because the story of his life is so incredible. You know, just the the guy who was a forerunner of Larry Flint and eventually ended up homeless on the street. And you know, over the years, I've accumulated a pretty big collection of old issues of Screw. And they are amazing documents of New York history. Because it was a consumer reports of sex, there are reviews of strip clubs and massage parlors, and there are all of these classified ads of you know people who are probably long dead by now. And it had a section called Sex Scene, where it would document you know, if there was a big party at Plato's Retreat, for instance, or if the adult film awards were held, you know, just uh, real bootstraps, uh, shoe leather reporting. Um, And, you know, it would have interviews with all the big porn stars of the day. Uh, And if and so it's an amazing, like, historical document, I would love it if somebody had the wherewithal to like, 
actually archive all of this material because it is a secret history of New York. It's an unofficial history. And I was particularly vulnerable to becoming interested in this uh, when I was in New York because I was spending a lot of time in Times Square with the Naked Cowboy. And the the cognitive dissonance between what Times Square used to be and what it is now was so extreme, and it seemed to happen so suddenly in the '90s when you know Disney bought up all this property. Um, the 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 fact that the shift was so sudden and so extreme, um, and Goldstein who at that time, I guess, was living in an apartment that Penn Jillette was paying for, he he felt to me like the human embodiment of this cognitive dissonance. He was this man who was so incredibly influential, so incredibly successful in the 70s, um, you know, probably like the most visible public face of the New York sex industry. And by this time, not just poor, but completely forgotten, um, so that cognitive dissonance has always fascinated me. I consider myself lucky when I I got when I get I, when I turned ten, which was in the very late seventies. Uh, we went to go to New York City to go visit my uncle who lives there, and he lived in Chelsea. But I have very very vivid memories of a stroll in the Deuce an afternoon stroll when I was oh, about 10 years old and seeing all the movie marquees, seeing all the porn theaters, seeing all the sort of extras from Taxi Driver uh, walking around, it was uh, a sort of burned right into my brain. Just It just felt like sin. It was sort of my first glimpse into this uh, verboten environment. It just felt dangerous even in the afternoon. Um, of course, I was under no threat. But I remember in the 90s, I went back to Times Square and was shocked at how it had been completely wiped away and replaced by chain stores and family, pseudo-family-friendly franchises. And then I discovered that the sleaze of New York that I, that I remember seeing as a child was still fairly preserved on 8th Avenue. Well, during my time in New York, which would have been 2011, 2012, there was still this place on 8th Avenue and 42nd Street, Show World, which in the 70s took up half the city block. It was, you know, the Disneyland of sex. Uh, all the porn stars would, would perform there. There would be peep show booths. Uh, you know, video machines, uh, uh, supposedly the little coin that would operate the peep show booths, the show world coin was like ubiquitous in New York at the time. It would constantly be showing up in tip jars and, you know, on the ground in the subway or, or whatever. When Giuliani was mayor, they instituted this new law where I, I'm not, I can't remember what the exact percentage of it was, but I think it, I think I know it was it is. 60% non-pornographic content. It was 50%. Okay. It had every, to be, every store in Times Square had to be uh, 50% non-adult content. Okay. So, so any any adult bookstore or video store needed to carry like blank $1 video cassettes and things like that in terms of their stock so that they could get around that rule. Yeah. So I went to Show World and... You know, Show World by that point had sold off a lot of its property. Also, on its right was a theater for children, you know, which is an mm. amusing juxtaposition. But when you went in, uh, like at the front counter, there would be all of these like public domain videos 
DVDs of Groucho Marx on You Bet Your Life or, you know, public domain episodes of the Beverly Hillbillies. And on the main floor, you know, there were just a couple of desultory racks of pornographic DVDs. And there would be people hanging around there. And uh, it became clear to me that a lot of the people there were people who didn't have access to the internet. And so they would go there and they would look at the back of the case so that they could commit images to memory that they would masturbate to later. So that was incredible. And then the basement was all like word searches and crossword puzzles, just stacks and stacks and stacks of them. Um, So, you know, it was a, it was a shadow of its uh, former glory. I did, managed to purchase the two-disc special edition of The Devil and Miss Jones there, uh, which has a (laughs) spectacular Gerard Damiano commentary track, a 30-minute interview with Georgina Spelvin. So there there were things for a cinephile to uh, enjoy at Show World. But yes, a mere shadow of its former self. And I think it closed recently because I think the guy who owned it died. Yeah, a few years ago it finally closed. I think the guy yeah, I think the only reason it closed was because the guy who owned the place died. The guy who runs that porn theater in Montreal, by the way, he's a, he's another guy who um is very like committed to the business, like he really believes in it. That that place, I think it's called the Cinema Lamour, right? He could sell that property for a ton of money because it's in such a desirable part of Montreal. But he he strongly believes in the need for for a theater to exhibit pornography and for, I guess, lonely old men to go cruise. Yeah, so the fact that there exist uh, a handful of people who who truly believe in the mission to the point where he will not sell his theater and, and retire an extremely wealthy man, I find that very moving. We're going to look at Al Goldstein a little bit through two documentaries. One of them captures him just before the downslide, and one of them captures him right in the middle of the downslide, taking him all the way to the hell that, you know, he eventually sort of crawled out of the hell towards the end, but maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. I mean, not really, but... (laughs) Yeah. The first film that we're going to talk about is a documentary called Screwed, which I saw at the Toronto Film Festival, and I was actually very proud of myself for seeing this completely disreputable and scuzzy documentary about Al Goldstein with a bunch of normies. I believe that producer Todd Phillips participated in the Q&A, although I didn't really know who he was at that point. This was 1996. I knew that he directed the uh, immortal documentary about Gigi Allen. So I guess he thought of himself as sort of a punk provocateur filmmaker and produced this movie called Screwed, which is a very disreputable and, for the most part, hagiographic portrayal of not only Al Goldstein, but of the sort of the the world that he operated in, including these fairly uh, bleak interviews with uh, some major consumers of porn. I do want to push back slightly on the idea that it's hagiographic, because I think the world that this movie depicts, and I think one of the reasons I like this movie is because it does depict the world. It takes a bit of a, it occasionally takes a bit of a macro look at Al Goldstein's universe. You do see those porn consumers, and you know they are they are among the saddest people I think I've ever seen in a documentary. There's that one guy 
who his his entire apartment is basically a porn palace uh, just vhs tapes everywhere um and and he's almost kind of like a porn historian too he he remembers like goldstein means so much to him and he remembers like uh days when goldstein was arrested you know um there's also mm-hmm. that guy, uh, Curtis, what's his name, who was the leader of the Guardian Curtis Angels. Curtis Lewa of the Guardian Angels. Yeah, they were kind of like a vigilante type. Maybe vigilante is an overstatement, but they were a sort of far right, I think, Christian group um, um, who really made it their mission to ward vice out of the city. The Guardian Angels were like, they're kind of like a proto version of sort of the MAGA guys who could never actually get into the police or into the military, but who have great respect for law and order. But, you know, it's their way of being cops. And Sliwa was, uh, Curtis Sliwa was uh, their leader. So he was a guy who was on the pseudo on the side of law and order, but he used that mostly as a pretext to be a bit of a bully. Mm hmm. And he he's in screwed a lot, ranting about you know Sin City, and he sort of considers Goldstein to be the guy who destroyed New York. <laughs> For those of us who are interested in Al Goldstein, screwed I think is a real gold mine. You know, you spend so much time with him, you, you get a sense of what his lifestyle was like, jetting back and forth between uh, New York and California. I mean, basically at this point whatever battles that he had been fighting, whatever censorship causes uh, he had been standing up for or or against, that was all in the past. And Screw was basically his piggy bank. It was also his soapbox to rail against, um, you know, people who had wronged him, like his ex-wives and uh, people who ran various delis and various taxi drivers. and well, What makes New York the city from hell are the little injustices. This represents a major injustice, camera world. My ex-wife went here to return something, and they said we don't return. They do switch and bait. This is a store that should be closed. It's a criminal operation. If I uh, were an attorney general, I would use the RICO criminal statute to close this place. This is Al Goldstein from Midnight Blue saying, camera world, go fuck yourself. Screwed. When I c- describe uh, the movie Screwed as being hagiographic, I guess I'm relating that in comparison to the second film that we'll talk about, which is a documentary called, the full title you may know better, but it's called Porn King. Yeah, Porn King, The Trials of Al Goldstein, which takes place during his final downfall in 2002-2003. And again, folks, I know you're listening to this and thinking, why would anybody be interested in Al Goldstein? Why would anybody have affection for Al Goldstein? And this documentary will not will not help the case because it really captures Goldstein at his worst. You, you were telling me before recording, I'm sure we'll get into this more, but that Goldstein has a kind of like Trumpian quality to him. And you see that a lot in this documentary. Uh, his, his empire is running on fumes. It's the last couple years of midnight blue and in 2001 he had a he had a female assistant who just quit on him without notice and he basically launched a harassment campaign against her he uh, published her phone number in screw he left uh, uh, voicemail messages on her phone saying things like i'm gonna take you down as well as some language that i'm much too much of a gentleman to repeat 
And she sued him, and he made this very pathetic attempt to fight the case as a free speech case. You know, he was he was still shadow boxing, trying to live up to the persona that he created 30 years before that. It had been a long time since she'd fought a free free speech case. And, you know, I think we can all agree that the cases he was fighting in the early 70s for the right to, you know, um, review sex toys in a newspaper a different kind of free speech case than is it freedom of speech to leave a threatening voicemail on your ex-employee's phone? The way I would sort of describe Goldstein's, you know, legendary and actually ultimately helpful fights uh, for the rights in the First Amendment, that the argument that he presented boiled down to not exactly being a defense of pornography, but as a defense of its right to exist in terms of expression. So if you truly believe in freedom of speech and freedom of expression, then you have to tolerate Al Goldstein. Yes. And uh, by the way, the move that people often make when defending people like Al Goldstein and Larry Flint is to say, listen, I don't I don't like what they say. I think what they say is is terrible. But, you know, you've got to take the good with the bad. And I, I just want to say on the record that early Screw magazine, the stuff they were publishing in the 70s, uh, I, I do like that shit. Uh, I find that stuff hilarious. Um, I find the very base and ugly political satire of the magazine, you know, very like sub, 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 sub National Lampoon satire that they were doing. Like they had a column mm-hmm. called The Shit List where they would just, you know, pile on ad hominem attack after ad hominem attack after whoever their target was. Um, I love that stuff. But this is Al at his most desperate in the Porn King documentary. And you see him just basically committing um reputational suicide in this film he is just he he's facing this misdemeanor charge and he tries to turn it into a first amendment fight uh and he's just stacking the deck against himself throughout the entire movie i mean the very beginning of the film is him screaming at um the guys in the courthouse because he's brought this documentary crew with him he antagonizes the da and the judge in print and on his show during the trial at one point, he even runs the phone numbers of the judge and the DA on the front cover of Screw. He drops his trousers and, sh- and lets the press take pictures of his ass in the hallway. You know, it's uh, grisly. You just can't look away, though, because it's just just so wrong-headed. And uh, I didn't think the documentary was all that great, but it gets, it gets by on just this very unflinching portrayal of Goldstein at his wits end. The documentary weirdly reminded me of Bad Lieutenant, where it's like this portrait of uh, just an absolutely vile and base human being, and then it asks you, okay, to to what extent is this man redeemable? To what extent does this man deserve pity and sympathy? There was one very telling uh, moment and uh, that I want to sort of expound upon a bit. He's his defense of uh, leaving the threatening phone calls being protected speech or whatever is the idea that it's going to lead to violence, that he's going to actually like carry out the threats that he's making. And he says, I'm not violent. My mouth is violent. I mean, I think those threatening voicemails are are pretty indefensible. I mean, even if even if it wasn't going to lead, even if him saying to her, I'm going to take you down, even if that doesn't lead to physical violence, I, I do like I do think his mouth is violent. And I do think people shouldn't have to live with 
getting voicemails from him and every other masturbator in New York because he published her fucking phone number in Screw Magazine. Yeah. The only thing I'll say for Al Goldstein here, not in defense of him, because there is really no defending this stuff, but uh, hurt people do hurt people. And you get a sense in both of these documentaries that this is this is a a little boy who uh, never never had any self esteem and never felt good about himself, uh, struggled his whole life to get anyone to love him. Very bitter about his father until the day that he died. I think probably also had complicated feelings about his mother because his mother cheated on his father a lot, and then. You know, uh, in his self-destructive way, he destroyed four or five marriages. In one of the documentaries, I think the second, I think Screwed, we see his second wife who comes across as like she was still on speaking terms with him. She still had a certain amount of affection for him. And she comes across as an awfully kind and loving woman. And, uh, you know, he even he alienated her, too, because he couldn't help himself. Like he, he was so used to not being loved that when, whenever he got it, um, he had to sabotage it in some way. And around the time that this porn King documentary was being made, he'd finally had a falling out with his son and his son, who I believe is an attorney, uh, nowadays, he was the top of his class in Harvard law school, you know, very, a very successful and accomplished person. Uh, but, his father, Al Goldstein, was publishing horrible things about his mother in Screw Magazine, and he took the side of his mother, and this broke Al's heart, and it led to Al you know, publishing one terrible thing after another about his son in the pages of Screw. And so, you know, by, by the time this Porn King documentary comes around, I think we're looking at a man who, like, basically has a death wish— like he kind of has nothing else to live for and he wants to see just like how far he can push it. The only thing he has to live for, like like all of his battles are won at this point and he's lost everything else. So um, he just wants to recapture a bit of the flavor of a, a brief period of time in the 70s when he was kind of uh, wanted and accepted in the eyes of society or in the eyes of certain parts of society. I don't know if that makes any sense at all. It does, but... When I was watching the film, I I was thinking about a lesson that I learned personally, uh, which is about the fate of psychopaths. Mm-hmm. I would classify Goldstein as a, a psychopath, a, a functioning psychopath who stopped functioning, which is like what happens to the vast majority of actual psychopaths is things don't end very well for him. All these, uh, he's just incapable of expressing love. The only way that he can do it is through the sort of the abusive language. And sometimes you detect when he's on a fuck you rant about his child that he's redirecting er, and rechanneling feelings of love into this abuse. Like, he's so hateful uh, towards his son. Like, no uh, actual parent could ever say something about their successful child. Like, his child is what you want to see when you raise a child, to, for them to have... A, a successful life, but he is just so un, unforgiving. Of well, there's child. a it's- fascinating and telling moment in that documentary where he shows off to the filmmaker. He has framed on his wall, like the certification that showed that his son was number one in his class of over 200 at Harvard law school. 
Um, and, and he talks so fondly and so proudly of this. And then he says into the camera something like, now, now, Jordan, you're you're a piece of shit. Uh, I, I I hate you, but you're still my son, and I love you, or you know something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he can't just say I love you mm-hmm. or I love my son. He has to say you're a piece of shit, but I love you. Mm-hmm. It's uh, you know just somebody who is just incapable of expressing love. You could you could pa- map that out for the whole story of his life in a way that everything that he achieved was. Uh, his way of sort of getting over the fact that he was just an impossible person. His his autobiography is depressing reading. I mean, it's a pretty good book because Josh Allen Friedman is a pretty good writer. So Friedman is able to like find the pathos in Goldstein that Goldstein never would have been able to summon had he been left to his own devices. But the book is fascinating because it just chronicles one broken friendship, one um, tattered relationship after another. Like, for instance, Goldstein used to be very friendly with Hugh Hefner. He used to go to the Playboy Mansion, you know, on on party nights or For whatever. movie nights. Yeah, and he would bring his son to the Playboy Mansion too, but... Um, I, I forgot exactly what the incident was, but Hefner didn't want his son at some function and Goldstein said, ah, fuck you, you know, whatever. And, you know, destroyed his relationship with Hugh Hefner, um, I guess out of an act, a strange act of love for his son. And his life is one series of incidents like that after another. Yeah, you get the sense at the uh, end of Porn King, where Al Goldstein has such contempt for the entire process that he shows up for his sentencing hearing. By the way, spoiler alert, he's found guilty of uh, harassment. Oh, what a, what a miscarriage of justice. <laughs> um, so he shows up for his sentencing hearing in a cartoon uh, prison, jump, you know, the prison suit, the white and black stripes. Like he looks, the central casting cartoon idea of a prisoner. Mm-hmm. And there are these onlookers in the court hallway, and one of them quite rightly says, Oh, that's really going to go over well with sentencing with the judge. <laughs> like he just knows that, like, Goldstein runs the risk of actually having uh, more prison time because of this stunt. Goldstein wound up going to Rikers Island. Um, and then I guess his lawyers got him out after about six days. But that's really where the spiral starts. Like, where it didn't even occur to Goldstein that he could wind up in jail until he found himself in jail. Well, Rikers um, Island in 2003 was not the place for a 300-pound, uh, 60-something diabetic who was white, okay? Yeah. Like, a, an incredible yeah. bad, bad uh, call. confluence of factors that you don't want to be in Rikers Island. But he had no. been to prison in the early 70s when he was a younger, healthier, um, more uh, man with a little more piss and vinegar in, in himself. Yeah, and with, with, the, with, with, uh, morale, uh, with sort of moral courage on his side or whatever. But this is like a mockery of the actual uh, court battles that Al Goldstein fought. I mean, it's just ridiculous. You feel sorry for his legal team. And then in the final minutes of the movie, of course, Goldstein stops speaking to the documentary crew long before the actual trial is over. But he is brought pretty low by the end and sort of makes himself available to them again. At this point, Goldstein is homeless. He's lost tons of weight. He is a shadow of his former self. And um, he's sort of unrepentant to the end. I think he sort of 
There's a very depressing coda where Goldstein says that, you know, even though he has no roof over his head, even though Goldstein has had a terrible comeuppance, there's some kind of idea in his mind that it was all worth it because he got so much pussy throughout his life and he had all the best cigars and he ate at all the best restaurants. So this is almost like the, the, the wages of sin. Yeah, which, I mean, you know, I think it's not necessarily the fate of a person like him, but psychopaths don't really see too far ahead when they're making their plans. Yeah, they it can is, rationalize almost anything that happens to them. It is funny, isn't it, that Hugh Hefner was able to die with uh, extreme wealth? Uh, yes, all, living a very similar life that Goldstein once lived, uh, and and yet, and nevertheless. Well, we we still have Larry Flint. I keep thinking that somewhere along the line he actually passed away, but he's still alive, and I think he's still a very rich man. Larry Flint is in that documentary, by the way, and something that I didn't mention that's important to mention is that Larry Flint basically stole the format of Screw for Hustler. In fact, he even stole the Peter meter. The whole magazine, Hustler, especially in its early days, one section after another was just the same as screw like screw had a section called smut from the past where they would show pictures of old stag films from the 20s and 30s and you know hustler had its equivalent to that Uh, like it was basically the same thing but what uh larry flint was able to do was make the magazine go national and goldstein in the 70s tried to do that for about a year he had a magazine called national screw which I mean, just as Hustler tried to rip off Screw and succeeded, National Screw tried to rip off Hustler, um, and and it didn't work out. Um, and it's a very glossy, like, and it has articles. Like, I've got a few copies, and one of the issues has an article by Jay Hoberman about, um, you know, the life and times of a certain cartoonist whose name I forget. Like, it had some very serious articles in it, in addition to, like, a pictorial of Marilyn Chambers and other stuff like that. Uh, anyway, he he didn't make it work because, uh, you know, for whatever reason, Hustler Hustler worked as a glossy magazine, but I think Screw needed to be on dirty newsprint for for the aesthetic mm-hmm. to work. By the way, all of Goldstein's other publishing ventures failed. Incredibly, in the seventies, for a brief period, he had a magazine that I think lasted for three or four issues called Death Magazine, which was an attempt to do for death what screw magazine did for sex and i've never seen the magazine i don't know what it was like but you can it was was he trying to do what guccione was doing where he started omni magazine because of how successful penthouse was so he wanted his own sort of like intellectual sideline brand yeah i mean that must have been it i'm sure that was part of the motivation for national screw as well um uh, but it's clear that aside from his one one good idea, which was to make a sex magazine, which he had the idea at the exact right time for it to catch the zeitgeist. Aside from that, his publishing instincts don't seem to have been particularly strong. And and one more thing that I want to talk about as we wrap things up with Al and move on to the present day. One thing that really struck me, especially in the current times that we're living in right now, was to watch this documentary, Porn King, and to see Al Goldstein basically refusing to accept reality, lashing out at his persecutors, um, assuming that, you know, the reason that they're going after him is because he's Jewish and they're Nazis, that the judge is uh, an Asian man, so every single complaint Goldstein has about him is racially tinged 
not even racially tinged, racially fueled. Um, it reminds me of a certain president. Uh, which president are you thinking of? The soon-to-be former president of the United States, Donald Trump. Another creation of New York's well, media you know, both world. Guys. The parallels are just so incredible. Like Al Goldstein in this documentary, he will not accept defeat. He's being a complete lunatic. He's rejecting conventions. He wraps himself up in the flag, and he even hates his son. Yeah, both of those guys, um, I mean, I guess they're both psychopaths in a way. Uh, both of them seem to imagine themselves in a kind of uh, show business lineage. Like, they're both like a combination of a wrestling heel and like an insult comic. When Goldstein is doing all of those racist jokes about the judge, and by the way, this is this is not even remotely a defense of this because uh, there's not there's nothing funny about that. But I think he imagines himself almost like being like the way that Don Rickles would do racist jokes about people. I don't think Goldstein would have considered himself racist. I think he would have just thought of himself as going for the most obvious low hanging fruit, um, which is not to say that it's not racist. No. And, you know, it, 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 psychologically, it's explainable because he probably faced a great deal of that kind of abuse as a child, as a Jewish kid. Well, that's a very important point because his Jewishness was very central to his brand. And it's particularly in contrast to Hugh Hefner, who cultivated a persona for himself as being like a waspy, upper class intellectual. Um, Goldstein in contrast, was very proudly ethnic. And he used he used his ethnicity, um, you know, just if, pe- if people would make fun of him for, for his Jewishness growing up, uh, he turned that into a weapon. He was like, yes, uh, pornography is a corrupting force, and I'm a corrupting force. You think the Jews are the ones perpetuating pornography? Uh, well, that's true. Uh, I, I'm Jewish, and here's my, like, my dirty Jewish body, and, and I'm going to corrupt... Uh, American society uh, that is very central to his to his project you know and also you know the 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 it was ever thus uh Jewish survival technique of humor mm-hmm. which which Goldstein personifies in a very very hard to defend way the very key uh insight into himself from the movie screwed as at one point he describes Midnight Blue as being more about revenge than entertainment. That the show uh, became more and more sort of like a sarcastic sort of patriotism in many ways. Uh, but here's the, here's the main quote. He said, I ridiculed myself before anyone else could. You make yourself into a joke so that no one can hurt you. Well, the ugly thing about Midnight Blue, especially towards the end when it basically became a soapbox for his vendettas towards his ex-wives, is um, the ex-wives for the viewer, for the presumably lonely, single, masturbating viewer in New York, the ex-wives became symbolic of all women, all women who uh, rejected them or or didn't accept their advances. Uh, You know, years later, when Bang Bus was very popular on the internet, you know the structure of every Bang Bus episode, which, you know, they were all staged, of course, but like they would ostensibly pick a woman up at the side of the road. They would they would uh, dangle some money at her and convince her to have sex with the guy, and then they would leave her at the side of the road naked and run off. Like uh, both that and Goldstein and a lot of contemporary porn are, are um, playing with this very like 
complex, playing in this very complex emotional landscape where women are like objects of desire. Like the sexual revolution has happened. So women are having sex um, and yet they're not having sex with me. Um, and so, and so like, like they're, they're bad. (laughs) Like Goldstein was once a warrior for the sexual revolution. And then he became like a symbolic figure for all the people left out of the sexual revolution. If people are interested in Goldstein, I particularly recommend looking up an appearance that he made on hot seat with Wally George in the eighties. Wally George was, uh, a far right, um, you know, kind of like a sub Morton Downey Jr. talk show host. And yes, he had Goldstein on to like rail against him. And that debate between the two of them is like if a Joe Biden, Donald Trump presidential debate was just Trump versus Trump. It's like spectacular. And the two of them are such wonderful entertainers together. Like they keep threatening each other with physical violence. And halfway through, you start to realize that they're both kind of in on the joke. Like they both know that they are pro wrestling heels in this exchange. And the whole audience is on Wally's side, of course. The whole audience is like fundamentalist Christians and conservatives. And Goldstein is so remarkably unfazed by their scorn. In fact, he he loves their scorn. Yeah, he he loves it. Um, and yeah, Goldstein, it's fuel for him. Goldstein gets uh, a lot of just terrific zingers in. Uh, just just fascinating. This, in fact, I think would be my entry point for anybody interested in Al Goldstein scholarship. I will put in the uh, description of this episode that link, and I will also throw in the immortal appearance of Al Goldstein and Jerry Lewis on a morning talk show in New York in the <laughs> mid-70s. My, my two dads. <laughs> Let's also uh, address the elephant in the room, Will, that you were one of the last people to see Al Goldstein alive. Yeah, so, I mean, after listening to that, hour of discussion about Al Goldstein, you're probably wondering, you know, why would I want to meet this awful man? Uh, and I don't, I don't have an explanation for that, but I was very fascinated with Al Goldstein and I was writing an article about his life and times for Hazlitt. And, uh, I, I went, I went to New York, uh, to do some research about him, to look at some old issues of screw on microfilm. I talked to a couple of his associates, And I was hoping to talk to Goldstein, who was still alive at that time. And I reached out to a woman named Vivica Gardner, who was uh, in the entertainment industry. She was a friend of Penn Jillette's. An amazing fact about Penn Jillette is he was the one who got Goldstein off the street and put him into an apartment because Jillette uh, very much admired Goldstein's history as a First Amendment activist. Uh, And so, and you know, Penn Jillette, one of the most famous libertarians in the United States. Uh, One thing you can say for him is he actually does kind of live his politics. He believes that wealthy people should help less wealthy people and that it shouldn't be outsourced to the state. And I mean, I, I heavily disagree with I heavily disagree with his point of view, but I mean, at least he did lift Al Goldstein off the street. Anyway, I reached out to Vivica Gardner and she said, well, you know, Al's not much for conversation these days, but he does like company. So feel free to visit him in the hospital. And I I mean, this isn't really a very funny story because I did see him on his deathbed. Uh, He was 
skin and bones at that time. And he had basically decided that he was going to die. So when I saw him, uh, he had these like big uh, mittens, these big like foam gloves that they put on his hand because he had kept pulling out his feeding tube. Uh, You know, a few weeks earlier or a few months earlier, he was with it enough that he went to the opening of this thing in Chinatown. I think the Safdie brothers are involved in it, actually. There's this world's smallest museum that's in an alley in Chinatown. Uh, you know, you can you can look through a window at it. And this this Chinatown museum had curated some of his personal belongings that they had rescued from his storage unit. You know, his New York cab license, a letter from Mel Brooks saying that Mel Brooks wouldn't uh, testify at his trial, you know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> so he was with it enough to attend that. But anyway, by the time I saw him, which would have been in December 20. 2013 uh he had lost the will to live so i mean i i saw him i didn't um he he didn't talk yeah he really was not much for conversation but uh i was in his presence and i do remember that a couple days later he died and he was on the front page of the new york times you know every media outlet in america had a story on him and uh, that, that was a fascinating thing to see um, the the juxtaposition between fame and obscurity and seeing him, you know, lonely and desperate in a hospital room a few days before and then on the cover of the New York Times a few days later. But uh, the one happy part of the story is Vivica showed me on her phone this video that she had taken of Al a couple weeks earlier. Um, and And... I won't say everything that he said in the video, uh, but the video was like him sitting in a chair, you know, very much a little old man. And you heard her voice say, so, um, Al, what was it you said that you would do to me if you were younger? And he was like, ah, uh, well, first I would put my tongue in your, and you know, it went from there. (laughs) And you know, he was, he was still like, he could still summon the old magic. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, Psychopaths are are interesting to see from a distance. You know, one of the vicarious thrill that I get from, you know, seeing a documentary about Al Goldstein is knowing that I don't have to talk to this person. But it's very, very interesting to see them in action. And these two documentaries are, are, are interesting to see just the fate of people like that, because mm-hmm. we don't always see just how badly it ends for people mm-hmm. uh, of this caliber. You maintain a scintilla of of fondness for this person, despite all evidence to the contrary. Just for the spectacle of seeing somebody living their truth, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. <laughs> you don't have to like it. You don't have to aspire to it. But, you know, again, Goldstein was, he did not project any kind of aspirational qualities. He was just himself. And you had to accept it or not. Mm-hmm. which I always find very important and um, as a sort of consideration of people, to sort of see them for who they are. I agree. He is a hero. Will, I also wanted to have you on the show to uh, express my condolences to you for Donald Trump's, uh, what appears to be his loss as the president. 
it doesn't look like he's going to make it. I know as a young conservative, you're very upset by this. You know, this again, this is all. Did you were you live streaming? Were you live streaming the Million MAGA March since you couldn't be down there yourself? This is all 12 dimensional chess. Don't worry. Trump's got this in the bag. He still has a lot of moves. He can he can play Uh, courts, decide elections, not the media. So uh, stay tuned. Were you a little sad that that uh, Trump admitted that Biden won today in a tweet? I mean, I thought that was pretty. He has not so far said that. <laughs> I thought that was pretty mind blowing. Um, I guess he's not going to do a concession speech, is he? Not only is he not going to do a concession speech, but I would be shocked if he attended the inauguration of Joe Biden next January. I am positive that he will skip. My it. prediction right now is that he will hold a competing rally. Uh, during the inauguration. That's a very good prediction. I mean, his whole presidency was an alternative universe of uh, what a presidency is. So why can't that show continue without him having access to the nuclear codes? I assume that he's going to make it his brand that the election was stolen from him. He will spend Biden's entire presidency ranting about uh, what a terrible job Biden's doing fighting the coronavirus etc etc well he's already saying that he at least in private he's saying that he will run again in four years and i haven't known to what extent to believe that because obviously he hates being president but he also hates losing even more i mean if he if he that is all talk you think so well i don't know i think i think if he runs again in four years he'll win because uh biden and harris are inheriting Uh, an out-of-control pandemic, and they're inheriting a recession. And I don't know what their plan to deal with this is. I mean, I understand. I have been repeatedly assured that Biden believes in science, but I don't know what this actually translates to. So, you know, you've got an incoming presidency, a very weak presidency with Mitch McConnell controlling the Senate. Um, I mean, I don't know how those Georgia races are going to turn out, but I would not be surprised if the Republicans keep the Senate you know, it'll be it'll be gridlock. And this pandemic is just going to be it's going to weigh down the incoming Democratic administration from the beginning. And um, Biden's not going to serve the whole term, he's eventually going to be subbed in or Kamala Harris is eventually going to be subbed in. And she's not very popular. And she probably never will be very popular. And then Trump, if he runs again, um, he's going to be able to rally the troops and beat her. That's what I think. Yeah, th- that that's a sound argument. But I also think that Trump is a coward and that he got humiliated in this election. The fact that he it's been 10 days and he still hasn't admitted that he lost the election. I don't think that he's going to put himself in a position like that again to for another humiliation. I think he's just going to say that he's going to do it. And one of the reasons why I think that's okay is because I don't want the Republicans to get into a post-Trump environment. I want him to be the albatross that continues to weigh them down. I mean, I think... So if he threatens that he's going to run again, that kind of stops Tom Cotton types who, uh, you know, see themselves as the heir apparent. I mean, you you make a compelling argument. I mean, I would be... First of all, I'd be much more scared about... I'd be much more scared about Trump winning again than Tom Cotton winning, because I think, um, you know, Trump did pretty well in this election, all things considered. He did add to his vote total. Yeah. Uh, He is a uniquely charismatic figure 
um, who, you know, not a political genius, but a man of certain certain political instincts that other Republican politicians don't have. And I mean, I don't know, it is possible that he's a coward and it's possible that he wouldn't want to put himself in a position to lose again. But then again, I think we were all saying things like that before 2015. I think we were all saying, oh, he'll never run. He would never yeah. he would never actually want to do the work. He would never want to lose because, of course, he will lose. Um, I don't know. I, I incre- I'm talking myself into it. That's I increasingly true. think he's going to run again and win. Sorry, folks. Let's say one more thing about Trump. One of the things that I've been very amused by is the fact that he will not concede. He refuses to concede. And then what happens is that that means that every day Trump loses the election. (laughs) New results come in and it's like, oh, Trump lost Arizona. So that means that Biden's the president. Every day that Trump refuses to just throw in the towel and admit it is more news that Biden's won this and Trump lost that. And it's just, I don't understand how he doesn't see this. He does have a very fascinating brain, doesn't he? He doesn't seem to see a lot of uh, uh, reward in the idea of being dignified, does he? Like, um, you know, there's there's no nobility in any kind of, in any kind of loss uh, for him. No. And you know it's 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 been funny to watch though. It's like it it's like you just are just gonna keep on losing until you finally throw in the towel. But he just can't do it, so he's just gonna keep on losing. I am thrilled th- that there's another two months of this. I just can't wait to see all the stuff that he does in in the lame duck. I'm excited to see who he pardons. Uh, I'm excited to see the things that he does to sabotage the next administration. I'm excited for the new discourse cycles that will emerge um, every time that he refuses to follow some like long established protocol of, Oh, he's, he's not going to leave a handwritten note on a desk. Um, and you know, like people are going to get outraged over that. I, I, I love all that stuff. Oh, well, I can't wait strap to strap in. Cause there's going to be so much more of it. Um, I want to pivot now to uh, a story in the entertainment world. I don't know if do you have Netflix, Will? Do you do you subscribe to Netflix? Uh, yes, sir, I do. You know, folks, we always think of Orson Welles as being the creative force behind the movie Citizen Kane, the classic Hollywood flick. But a new Netflix movie is going to be airing soon that by the director David Fincher, which argues that there's actually a second person who deserves just as much credit for the success of Citizen Kane. A, a person that the movie names Mank. I'm just glad to see Netflix go after uh, what's really toxic in the film industry these days, which is the auteur theory. Um, have you seen Citizen Kane? Uh, yeah, I, I have seen it. Uh, a, a little overrated, I would say. Uh, no, folks, I'm just kidding. It's great. You know, some critics said it's terrific when it first came out <laughs> in the early 40s. I, I think if bef- I would just recommend to my listeners that before Mank hits Netflix, check out Citizen Kane. I think you're going to find it very, very interesting. Can I ask you, are you looking forward to Mank at all? I am, except the more that I see and hear about Mank, the less excited I am. When I heard it was coming, it could have it had the potential to be anything, and I was very, very excited. But the more I see of it, the more I worry. Fincher seems to be kind of Fincher's such a, a 
a forward-thinking uh, visual stylist, but the Mank looks a lot like uh, he's been using these like uh, presets that you can use on video editing software to like add film scratches to the movie or to have old-timey uh, graphics on the film. It seems like a bit of a step back. I mean, I haven't seen the movie, but like it seems like a film student's idea of a of a classic Hollywood look. Yeah, possibly the style that he's going for will make more sense when I see it in context. I don't get the idea of doing a movie that in some ways looks like a film from 1941, like it's in black and white, and supposedly it has like scratches that they've put in and real change markers, but also doing it in scope and filming it in... in affectless textureless digital video i mean i don't i don't i don't get that it it makes no sense to me i personally don't find david fincher all that fascinating a director i mean he's made plenty of movies that i like you know i think the social network is a good movie i think uh fight club uh, is perfectly fine zodiac's good but he's made a lot of uh dross too and uh i've said this before but I find this whole mystique that he builds around himself, like sh- making his actors do a hundred takes and, and creating this persona of himself as like a Kubrickian perfectionist. I find that such an annoying affectation. I don't think you become uh, an interesting auteur just because you torture your actors like that. So you're against torturing actors. I think that it's on a case by case basis. I, d- I think some <laughs> actors it's okay to torture. Yeah, okay, you, you raise a good point. I also want to talk a little bit about the, the uh, recent interview. Is it in The, in, in the Independent? What, which newspaper is it in? The Telegraph? The one that Fincher gave? Yeah, Fincher gave a very big interview where he does a lot of uh, Orson Welles bashing, I guess we could describe it. I mean, I hate this bullshit. Uh, I think it's ridiculous. All that All that stuff about, you know... Oh, he, he was brought down by his hubris. I mean, inevitably, some of that is true. Uh, but I, I am of the belief that, you know, this guy came into the system 80 years ago and he had complete creative control and he made the best movie of all time. And ever since then, the system has been trying to find ways to justify this, to, to explain away how something like this could happen. Um. And we should also point out that David Fincher's first film was Alien 3, which was completely tampered and meddled with. So you would think that Fincher would have more sympathy for a filmmaker who faced uh, studio interference. Mm -hmm. To accurately read Orson Welles' career, I think you have to recalibrate your definition of success. Welles, for whatever reason, was not able to thrive in the Hollywood studio system. You can blame Wells, you can blame the system, but, you know, he spent much of his life going around, hat in hand in Europe, uh, cobbling together financing, and he made one great film after another. He made The Trial, Chimes at Midnight, The Immortal Story, F for Fake, even The Other Side of the Wind, not completed during his lifetime, is an extraordinary film. It's really good. I loved it. And yet, somebody like David Fincher is still uh, propagating this line Pauline Kael did it before him that, uh, yes, this man that you think was a visionary was actually propped up by all of his collaborators who were the real authors of the film. Okay, fundamentally, I think this misunderstands what a director is. 
yes, mm-hmm. it is true that Citizen Kane is a great collaborative effort, that Herman Mankiewicz is a genius in his own right, that Greg Toland, that Robert Wise, Bernard Herman, all of these people contributed enormously, and you can see their contributions. Uh, but part of what a director does is to marshal a bunch of talented people to cr- uh, to serving his vision. And, you know, you can see anybody that worked with Wells um, did their best work with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Even Gary Graver, some f- terrific cinematography in The Other Side of the Wind. I think The Other Side of the Wind is like an extraordinary collaboration because he uses Gary Graver to best advantage. Gary Graver, a guy who shot porn and B movies, very used to working on the fringes and working very fast and cheap uh, with Wells. He was able to create that wonderfully beautiful rough hewn style in the other side of the wind. Um, but it was ultimately, I mean, look, I'm a, I'm an old dyed in the wool low tourist it is ultimately serving Wells's vision. Can you sum up what it appears that Fincher's dredging up again? The, uh, the debate over who really it's a Pauline Kale. Uh, essay that she wrote, right? Which which really influenced how people consider Wells as not really being the true author of Citizen Kane. Well, this is a very famous essay from the early 70s called Raising Kane, uh, where, as you alluded to, she gave most of the credit of the film's greatness to Herman Mankiewicz. And this was kind of the culmination of Kale's long and uh, famous skepticism of the auteur theory. She wanted to debunk the auteur theory by using Orson Welles as the ultimate example. Like uh, Orson Welles was the textbook example of the visionary who came into into the studio system and made personal art. Uh, and, and by using Herman Mankiewicz, uh, proposing that Mankiewicz was the primary author of Citizen Kane, she would then be able to debunk the auteur theory. Her research, which, by the way, she plagiarized from an academic, um, a man named Howard, or it might have been Harold Suber, uh, apologies, I forget his name, but she, she stole and, un, and didn't credit him with the research. I'm sure the research was fine on its own, but the way that she presented it was quite shoddy. Uh, she didn't really investigate the various drafts of the screenplay that existed, uh, Later historians like Robert Carringer, who wrote The Making of Citizen Kane, did investigate the various drafts and were able to kind of forensically analyze what Mankiewicz contributed and what Wells contributed. Essentially, Mankiewicz created a long, sprawling first draft that Wells was able to like hone down into the masterpiece that we see today. And so if you don't think... Um, Wells deserves co-screenwriting credit for that. I mean, I, I think I think you fundamentally don't understand what collaboration is. Yeah, I, I, I bristle at anybody who assumes that uh, film is not a collaborative art. And at the same time, there is a leader and there's a person who is the one who dictates how it's going to go. And you can't argue that Wells wasn't that on Citizen Kane. So, I mean, first of all, in a petty way, I kind of bristle at... David Fincher, who I regard as like, you know, a bit of a medium talent, <laughs> you know. I like him more than you, but I'm sympathetic to that diss. Uh, taking shots at the king. But beyond that, like, I especially bristle at like, you know, this this Netflix production. Um, 
dredging dredging up these old like debunked debates to say uh well you know a film film is a collaborative art form film is fundamentally a collaborative art form uh and that's why we netflix uh are the leaders because uh we're we're doing away with pesky things like artists (laughs) (laughs) look we even got david fincher it's kind of like the scene in citizen kane where he has all the chronicle writers all collected Netflix is sort of behaving that way, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, so Netflix is rounding up all their, you know, Ron Howard and uh, and uh, David Fincher and saying, you know, two years ago, they said... I, I, well, now, two I, years later, I've got my candy. All of it. Is there anything that you've seen recently or read that uh, has struck any kind of a chord with you in in light of what we're all going through right now as we sit on the precipice of perhaps a second lockdown? Um, well, I don't want to do something that's like shameless self-promotion, but like my big quarantine project uh, ever, ever since the start of it was to write a book about Matt Farley. And and uh, yes, uh, it's called Moturn on Moturn conversations with Matt Farley and Charles Roxburg. And at the beginning of quarantine, I became like, really obsessed with Farley and Roxburg. Um, you know, they're these they're these two guys who make these very low budget monster movies with their friends in in uh, Manchester, New Hampshire, very strange and, and wonderful movies. And they've created a whole kind of like entertainment ecosystem around themselves. Um, and I became particularly interested in the in them in the context of the pandemic, I think, because they are such um, um, voracious creators. Matt Farley is somebody who has like his business model is that he's written over 20,000 songs on Spotify and like each song, if it gets clicked a few times, will make like a couple of bucks over the course of a year. And if you multiply that couple of bucks by 20,000, it ends up being uh, a living. But, you know, he also makes he also makes these movies with his friends that definitely don't make money. Uh, but he but he keeps doing it uh, uh, because he loves to create so much. And something about that that spirit I found incredibly inspirational, particularly at the start of the lockdown it inspired me to want to like write a book about them. Uh, like, like the idea of doing a book uh, about something so niche is almost felt like, like, um, like a defiant gesture to be like, I'm going to do something that's like mm-hmm. not careerist at all. And that is simply about like the act of doing something that I think is important. Um so yeah. I think I find them, uh, to, to get back to your question, I think I find them particularly inspirational in the context of the lockdown um, because they symbolized to me like creativity um, um, against all obstacles. I could talk to you all day, but people can't necessarily listen to us talking all day. <laughs> so I think we'll wrap it up here. Uh, I want to say that Will has two great podcasts that are appointment listening for me every week. One is called The Important Cinema Club with Justin DeClue. The other is Michael and Us with Luke Savage. And they are wonderful podcasts about film in relation to the times that we're living in and to spotlight some things that are worth considering about these films. Um, And you are available on Twitter at WillSloanESQ. That is correct. Okay, well, with that, I guess we will sign off. 
Thank you so much for joining me. And my name is Jesse Hawken. Our Twitter uh, handle for the podcast is Junk Filter Pod. And there is a link there for our Patreon to, uh, to help support this podcast directly if you enjoy it. And uh, patrons will also receive bonus content. That's only $5 a month. And uh, we will be back in a few days with our third episode. Thank you so much, Will. Thank you. And see you soon. Thank you for listening.